Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. My name is Jens Nelson. And I'm Lucas Stock. This is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life as we strive for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. So Lucas, we are in a Christians of History segment yet again. Uh, for yet those again. of you who maybe missed all of last week, uh, we, we let out the announcement that for at least the foreseeable future, every Friday is going to be a Christian of History. Uh, we started actually with a fun Tuesday Cappadocian Fathers episode. I talked about Benjamin Keach on Friday. And so carrying in this same vein, uh, we, I think we mentioned that uh, from week to week, Lucas and I are going to be highlighting people from our tradition. So as I said, I, I talked about Benjamin Keach, who was a particular Baptist last week. This week, Lucas is going to be presenting on, uh, on an Anglican. And uh, on Tuesday, if you listen to our Tuesday episode, we talked about the Book of Common Prayer. And so we felt that it was all too fitting uh, to do the author, so to speak, of the Book of Common Prayer, Thomas Cranmer. So, Lucas, why don't you take it away? Yes, I would love to. Thank you. So, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer was born in 1489, and he died in 1556. Uh, he was born in a small village called Aslachton, I believe it's pronounced. Aslachton, not sure. To a sort of small gentry family of minor means. And he, his, his father died when he was about 12 or 13. And then when he was 14, his mother sent him to Cambridge to study, likely at the then recently founded Jesus College. He graduated around 1510 uh, and then was made a fellow of Jesus College, um, which is a position he then shortly after lost because he got married to a woman named Joan, whom he met through an acquaintance. She was like the niece of the owner of the Dolphin Inn, which was a place that he and some of the other fellows at the college used to kind of hang out in their free time. Um, so he was no longer a fellow. Uh, he was still, I, I forget the title, like a common... Um, not lecturer, common reader or something like that, but no longer a fellow. Um, but then about a year later, his wife, Joan, died in childbirth, actually. Um, and he was then restored to being a fellow. Um, so he kind of had a bit of a up, ups and downs there. Um, so during this period, he went on to get his master's. Uh, he, he was ordained as a, as a priest and then um, became a lecturer in divinity uh, and then eventually, in 1523, gained a doctorate of divinity uh, from Cambridge. So he was, you know, continued in that capacity. And then in 1530, um, he was actually sent to Rome by the king to appeal to the Pope in favor of uh, get Henry VIII getting, getting his annulment, uh, the famous kind of controversy that marked the... The, the start of the Reformation in, in England, so to speak, um, which he he was not able to get the Pope's uh, support because uh, the, the Pope was, was concerned with upsetting the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, who was the nephew of Henry VIII's wife. If you've never studied this period and episode of, of history, it is... It is wacky and wild hard to follow and quite interesting but so 
he wasn't able to get the Pope's help <laughs> with uh, with Henry wanting to divorce his wife. So um, Cramer returned in in the fall of 1530 to England, and he was there until 1532 when he was again sent out overseas. He was sent to Germany to be actually the ambassador to the court there. Um, and he was also sort of secretly on the side supposed to try to form an alliance with some of the Protestant German princes um, in order to kind of give Henry some political help. Um, Again, convoluted but interesting historical relations and politics and stuff, but that's kind of what he was doing. Um, And he actually got married again during this time um, to the niece of one of the Lutheran reformers, actually, I forget his first name, but Osiander is, is his name, um, which is interesting. I don't know a lot about this, but so Cranmer is a priest in the Roman church at this time. Um, so it is very interesting to see him get get remarried or, or get married at that time. You yeah, know? I was going to ask you, the, like, the, if at this point, if he was a Protestant or if he was still Roman, because it, it would seem to go against, like, the very nature of being a priest. Right. So it's it gets tricky um, it, for, you know, in general, but especially with a lot of the English reformers and the, the, the timeline of Reformation in England, it it's hard to, to use labels like... Protestant, Catholic, Anglican is pretty much impossible to use. It, it really doesn't exist yet at this time. Um, for, for a lot of reasons, these, these are really slippery and complicated labels to put back on these people. So at this time, you know, 1517 was when Luther nailed the 95 Theses. So, you know, the early 1530s, Luther's been working for over a decade at this point in establishing um, Reformation in, in Germany. The Swiss Reformation's been going on. Even the Radical Reformation with the Anabaptists has been going on for years at this point. And um, both, you know, obviously he married the, the niece of a, Cranmer, I mean, married the niece of a Lutheran reformer. So he has, like, pretty close connections, but also even going back earlier, um when he's studying, when he's teaching at Cambridge, he's interacting with the Lutheran Reformation, the ideas of the Reformation. And I don't know, I'm certainly not in a place to say how much of that he would have imbibed and kind of taken on as his own thought in theology, how much of his theology has shifted versus, you know, not changed, in what ways... You know, did he do this because he just fell in love? And, you know, I mean, it's not like he was the only Catholic priest to ever get married <laughs> um, secretly. Um, or did he, was this, was he was he able to do this personally because he, you know, even though he, he wasn't allowed to do this, he felt, you know, some strong way theologically or or as far as church law, or you know, I, I can't say, I'm not sure if anyone can say, but it, it gets murky, um, I guess is kind of the best thing to say, is it's tough to kind of, you know, it's, you can't put a date and say, you know, he woke up, you know, he went to bed Catholic one night and woke up Protestant the next, obviously. <laughs> um, 
And it's not even as easy as, you know, he was waiting for... It's just, it, it's very it's very tricky to kind of know the inner thoughts that he's going through um, because those aren't necessarily things that we have access to. Um, so he, he comes back to England in, in 1533 again because he's called to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is the most significant uh, uh, see in the Church of England. Um, he was approved as, as Archbishop by the Pope, because remember the Pope had to approve all the bishop appointments, and then he's consecrated, um, I believe, on March 10th, 1533. So kind of right away, the, the first thing he does is he, he grants Henry VIII an annulment um, and this kind of kicks off that whole thing with the, 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 the break with Rome that Henry VIII does. So, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. He's very faithful to Henry VIII. Um, he feels very strongly about his uh, role to serve the king as the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, he... It's interesting. He kind of wrestles when he when he becomes archbishop. He wrestles with the authority of the pope based on how it would clash with his commitment to obey the king. So this isn't necessarily the way Luther's wrestling with the authority of the pope. It, it, so it, that's kind of another reason I say it gets kind of tricky to think about. Like, when do we want to say Protestant? You know in terms of Cranmer's own thought. It's it's hard. Um, he wanted to reform the church. He, he was committed to reform. But Henry VIII was extremely conservative, um, it, except for the fact that he no longer submitted to the Pope. Everything about Henry VIII was Roman Catholic as far as his perspective on religion, theology, the church. Um, I don't know if this is, this is kind of one of those just little fun facts I like. The, the monarch of England, one of their titles is Defender of the Faith, which is a title that was given to Henry VIII by the Pope because he wrote a treatise defending the seven sacraments against Martin Luther. Um, so it's funny that the Protestant monarch of England has a title, Defender of the Faith, given to them by the Pope. <laughs> um, but that never changed. Henry's Henry's... Catholicism never lessened or reformed or, you know, liberalized or whatever you want to say. Um, so Cramer was kind of stuck, even though he was maybe interested in some liturgical reforms, maybe even theological reforms. He, he, he wasn't able to, to put them in place uh, while he's serving Henry VIII. And like I said, he was very faithful to him and he remained faithful to him. Um, one of the things he did do while Henry was still king was he introduced uh, the the first English Bible. He didn't translate it, but he was the one who like released it. Um, called it's it's called the Great Bible, um, and it was put in every church. A, a copy of the Bible in English was put in every church, um, which is pretty cool. Um, in 1547, Henry VIII dies, and his son Edward VI becomes king. Edward was like nine years old. Um, he was not, you know, he, he, he was raised uh, with a more reformed faith, but he was also just a kid. So Cramer was was able to 
he had a lot more freedom. So he could kind of start doing the reforms he wanted to do. Um, so this included, um, he, he introduced like the emphasis on preaching that com- comes out of the reformed churches in the continent. Um, reformers from the continent were invited and came to uh, Oxford and Cambridge to teach and uh, kind of exchange ideas. Uh, and also there was uh, repealing of some of the legislation that had come into place under Henry that kind of restricted the Reformation process. This include, included things, uh, laws about heresy, restrictions on Bible reading, um, and also um, the Act of Six Articles, which was a, an act that had six articles uh, that basically reinforced Roman Catholic theology around things like the Church, the Eucharist, uh, sin, how you're saved, all that kind of stuff. It's it, They're kind of interesting um, t- to read, but um, these were repealed, um, which kind of shows Cranmer was, though he had all these things he wanted to do, <laughs> but wasn't really able to. Um, so certainly by this point, Cranmer is firmly a reformer, even though um, he wasn't necessarily able to put all of his ideas into practice yet. Um, it, it's... Again, the English Reformation is is different than any of the other reformations and it it it's really interesting to see how messy it gets. I mean, everything's messy cuz history's messy, but like there's a lot of ways where the English Reformation is is just messier because it's there's lots of politics and controversies and it, it's just really it's really weird. <laughs> and and that in, extends to the work and life of of Cranmer himself. Um but in 1549, so so two years after Edward became king, um, kind of the, the the biggest step in the Reformation in England took place with the introduction of the Book of Common Prayer. So kind of you know going call back to Tuesday's episode. Uh, 1549 was the first edition of the Book of Common Prayer that Cranmer had worked on, and he released it. Um, he made it. There was an Act of Parliament. It, it became necessary um, to be used in all the churches around the country. This was followed in 1552 with the first revision of the Book of Common Prayer that, that continued and to push forward the Reformation project, and Cramer had a big hand in that. Um, and he would also continue his, his, his work of Reformation with um, the, the, he was the primary author of the 42 Articles, um, which is basically the first version of what would eventually become the 39 Articles under Queen Elizabeth after Cranmer's um, death is when that would be finally ratified in its current form um, in the in the 1560s. Um, so, you know, again, convoluted series of events. Edward dies very young, um, and then Henry's daughter Mary the first came to the throne. Mary, who was the first female ruler of England, which is pretty cool, was a committed and devout Roman Catholic. So she immediately starts trying to reverse all of the processes of reformation that had been going on in England for, at this point, like two decades, which is pretty, that's a lot of whiplash, I have to imagine, especially if you're just like some priest out in the country and all of a sudden, you know, you've been married for 15 years and now the queen is telling you you can't, you know, like I... I don't know exactly how that was experienced at all different levels of society, but it was certainly a drastic, or at least an attempt at a drastic change. Um, As you may know, 
Mary the First is also known as Bloody Mary. Um, and the reason for that is because as part of her program to restore uh, submission to the papacy uh, and undo the process of reformation, she uh, removed clergy and bishops who were uh, reformers, including Thomas Cranmer, um, and imprisoned them. Uh, Cranmer was replaced as Archbishop of Canterbury by a guy named Cardinal Reginald Pole, um, who had been in Rome, kind of hanging out with the Pope, and was actually a relative of Mary. Um, So Cranmer, along with other prominent reformers like Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, was imprisoned and they were he was tried he was tried for heresy um and cranmer this is kind of an interesting kind of conclusion to his story cranmer actually recanted all of his protestant views because he thought that he would not be executed if he recanted he then found out that he was she was going to execute him anyway so he he renounced his recantation and reaffirmed his commitment to to all of the Reformation views. So clearly his 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 recantation was not genuine. I don't know, maybe he was scared, maybe he thought he could continue to do good, you know, to work for further Reformation under Mary if he was alive. I, I don't know. Um, I wouldn't blame him for not wanting to be executed. I can understand why he might uh, recant given the opportunity. Um, but he he undid his recantation, um, reaffirming, like I said, all of the Reformation views that he had he had uh, been working on for the last at this point twenty years maybe um, personally. Um, so he was he was executed by burning at the stake, which was the traditional execution for heretics. Um, and when they lit the flames on the the stake or whatever. Um, he he held his right hand in the fire, the hand that he had signed his recantation with, um, until it like burned to a crisp and like didn't flinch. And he he kept saying this unworthy right hand, um, which is a pretty it's a it's a it's pretty I don't know I don't know what it is, but it's pretty That's pretty intense. hardcore. Dude. <laughs> it's pretty hardcore. Yeah. Um, if if you had any doubts about his you know commitment to Protestantism. Um, he, I think it, he kind of, he kind of proves that his, his recantation was not based on legitimately taking back his views. Yeah. Wow. Um, so that's how uh, his his life ends. in In 1556, he is he is executed um, as a martyr for the Re- Reformation faith um, under Queen Mary the um, First. Obviously, his legacy lives on in the. Uh, Anglican, the global Anglican communion in, in terms of the Book of Common Prayer, the 39 articles, the the work that he started um, continues on in a communion that is now a global tradition, and it's the third largest group of Christians in the world. Um, and it's kind of it's kind of interesting how convoluted and, and messy its beginnings were in terms of the transition in England from um, traditional Roman, Catholicism to a, a, a reformational Catholicism. Um, very, very uh, just intriguing and powerful life in terms of just the impact that, that 
he, along with the other reformers who, who took part in the Reformation in England, really had. Um, and it's also kind of, I think, a cool thing. I mean, it. I maybe this is just like an accident of history, but, you know, you have people who call themselves Calvinists. You have people who call themselves Lutherans. And I don't think Luther or Calvin would be particularly thrilled about that. But you, you don't ever have in history the, you don't ever have Cranmarians, you know. And <laughs> um, that's probably a, a much broader conversation to get into. But at the end of the day, it is kind of interesting that, we can look at his legacy um, more as a contribution than as like starting something. And we can see that, I think, in some of his shortcomings as well as um, the really impressive things that he did do for the church in England. Um, but at the end of the day, that's Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. Um, and yeah, that's really all, I, all I've got to say about him. Cool. Well, thank you, Lucas, for taking the time to do a little bit of studying and, and presenting that to us. Um, I, I'm excited for who you're going to choose in, in two weeks. I don't even know who I'm going to choose next week, but um, <laughs> it's it's kind of fun. Like I, I personally, I'm enjoying our, our focus on our traditions and, and looking at some of their, their roots. Um, we'll look at some of the really good, probably also some more of the not so good. Um, but as we do, my hope is that like on the one hand, we're introducing you listeners to people that you've maybe never heard of or you're hearing um, maybe parts of their story that you've never heard and and hopefully by doing so you're getting a fuller grander bigger picture of of who we are as Christians where we come from because we're we're whether we want to admit it or not we have a history uh, the church didn't just like blip and appear one day uh, but these things have been going on for 2,000-ish years. And um, it's it's good to go back and look at, at these heroes, at some of these, um, I'm trying to think of a word that's like more just like neutral than hero, but just uh, bricklayers, like these people who have just like laid the foundation for us. And uh, we, we can emulate the good things, we can honor the good things, and we can seek to um, ensure that we do not perpetuate the sin uh, that that they had. So um, we don't. We want to say thank you for tuning into this episode of the Doxology Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, make sure you hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can uh, yeah send us your feedback, your questions. We we always welcome your episode ideas. Uh, quick reminder that you should. Uh, follow us on Instagram for sure so that you can get uh, notified about the Instagram live that we're going to be doing. Uh, make sure that you comment with a friend that you like and that you follow us on Twitter and Instagram uh, because we're doing a giveaway at the end of this month. One lucky person is going to win two pretty great books. If you want to hear more details about that, go listen to the bonus episode. Uh, but we just want to say thank you. Peace. Peace.